please open your Bibles uh, to James uh, chapter 1. Again, that's the letter of James chapter 1. Uh, there's usually a cost with anything that's worth having. There's a line in one of my wife's favorite movies. Uh, one of the characters is thinking about buying a, a children's book, and the salesman tells him, he says, the illustrations are hand-tipped in this book. And the character replies, he says, and that's why it costs so much? No, the salesman answers, that's why it's worth so much. That's how it is in life, right? Things of great worth, uh, they tend to come with a great cost. And it's no different in the Christian life. There is, there is great benefit in sanctification. To quote the Apostle Paul, godliness with contentment is great gain. There's wisdom in the pursuit of righteousness because with wisdom comes great blessing. So holiness, it's worth having. But just like everything else in life, it doesn't come without a cost. There's a price to the blessing of righteousness, and that price is suffering. It's unavoidable. To quote the Apostle Paul, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Right? We live on a cursed planet, a cursed planet that's populated by sinful people, and so when we try to pursue God, there's going to be resistance. So we're going to suffer if we're going to be holy. In fact, in James 1, James tells us that suffering isn't just incidental to our sanctification, it's instrumental. God perfects our faith through suffering. Affliction forces us to learn how to depend on Him. And, and there is great gain in that kind of faith, great blessing. So where do we get the strength to push through this pain? Where do we gather up the resources we need to pay the price for the rare jewel of Christian contentment? That's the question we're currently exploring for now the third week in James chapter 1, verses 9-12. to 12. Let's begin by reading this passage together in its context, starting in verse 2 and continuing through verse 18. James 1, 2-18. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits 
of his creatures. Money is a remarkable tool. In my hand, I have a cell phone. Do you ever stop to think about all the technology that goes into the making of this device? Inside this phone are all kinds of microchips, which took years to develop, to the point that they could be small small enough to fit into this device. On those microchips are a variety of programs which software developers spent years in school learning to write, and which were then designed and maintained by a whole team of programmers. Even the materials in this phone, the plastic and the metal and the glass, it takes entire facilities designed for the procurement and refining and shaping of these materials for this phone to come together. I mean, the level of sophistication in this this device is, is absolutely remarkable. The amount of hours that go into getting this device into my hands are likewise extraordinary when you stop to think about it. Again, teams of hardware and software developers, marketers, salespeople, retailers, warehouse workers, and truck drivers. It's astonishing to think about all that goes into getting us this cell phone. Now, suppose that none of these people had a hand in making this phone. Suppose that I decided I was going to develop and build my phone from scratch without any help. How long do you think it would take me? Are we talking hours? Weeks? Months? Uh, No, I mean, we're probably talking years, right? More likely lifetimes. But it didn't take me several lifetimes to acquire my phone, did it? It just took me a few hours of work. And that, ladies and gentlemen is the beauty of money. Money allows us to multiply our efforts. It allows us to harness our collective productivity by converting the value of work or resources into units that we can easily trade with other people. In other words, I don't have to go and get a degree in computer engineering in order to get a smartphone. Because so long as I have money, I can pay other people to go and do all the work that builds my phone for me. Of course, they won't just develop the phone for me. They'll do it for lots of other people, too. And they'll acquire lots of money for their efforts. But money saves me from having to develop those skills myself. Again, you span span this out and apply this concept across society, across all kinds of trades. And this means that money can allow me to do things that I could never do on my own. Money, in this sense, is power. And that's why so many people are attracted to it. Politicians will will cater to their largest donors. I mean, I don't think there's any doubt, right, that the rich have a louder voice in our democratic process than the average person because of the allure of money. Businesses will likewise give special attention to their biggest customers, to the ones with the most money. Even we as individuals, a lot of times we tend to give preference to people around us who have money. You know, the rich uncle that nobody likes. Well... Everyone still smiles around him because they want his money. That friend with the boat in the weekend cottage, sometimes you know, it seems like their jokes are just a little bit funnier than everyone else's because people want their money. We go crazy over money. People will make all kinds of sacrifices to get their hands on it. They'll lie, cheat, and steal for it. They'll sell their dignity or compromise their reputation for it. Some people will even destroy relationships for it. 
And the reason is because of all the things that we think money can do for us. And this is what makes money such a serious threat to the Christian's growth. Once again, for the past several weeks, we've been studying James' teaching on trials. And of all the lessons that we've, that we've learned in this study, perhaps the most crucial is the importance of hope. Hope is the key to perseverance in trials. Again, there's, there's great benefit in righteousness, but James, t- James tells us that righteousness often comes at a cost, and that cost is suffering. God uses trials to make us holy. He uses pain to teach us how to have faith in Him. Hope is what gives you the strength to push through that pain and gain the benefit that those trials have to offer. Just like the man who sells everything that he has to buy the treasure that's hidden in the field. Or or like the merchant who sells everything he has to buy the pearl of great value. In the same way, the hope of our future reward encourages us to to suffer temporary loss for long-term gain. Well, as James writes this letter to his readers, as they're undergoing trials on account of their faith, he realizes that there are two threats to this kind of hope. And in the present context, it takes a common form. And that's money. Uh, money is such a, such a powerful tool, and therefore such a common source of temptation for so many, that the Scripture tends to go out of its way to warn us about the deceitfulness of riches. And the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, Jesus devotes a whole section of the sermon to the topic of money. Think about that for a minute. The Sermon on the Mount is an evangelistic sermon. Jesus is calling on people to repent from the way of salvation described by the scribes and Pharisees and to embrace the broken-hearted faith that He proclaimed. And in the midst of that, He takes time to address the idolatry of money. He considers the matter that important, that significant. It's a common enough stumbling block to salvation that Jesus has to warn against it specifically. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Again, he takes time in the middle of this evangelistic sermon to make this point, to say, you have to choose. You can't have it both ways and think that you can serve God and money at the same time. It has to be one or the other. The dilemma is common enough that Jesus feels he needs to point this out. Realizing the power of money, he then goes on to speak of the superiority of God, of how, of how God is what a person truly needs and not money, since God is the one who provides for us, not money. Basically, he shepherds his listeners through their idolatry of money. He gives them a realistic picture of it. And then he concludes, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is trouble of its own. Think about the significance of this. Money is such a powerful distraction that Jesus has to spend time reasoning with His listeners in order to show them that it isn't more important than their salvation. Like, we have to be told. You know, you should be more concerned about getting into heaven than your next paycheck. We have to be told. Worry more about your relationship with God than about money. Because a lot of the times in, in our mind... 
it's kind of a toss-up. We actually debate between the two. We, we say to ourselves, who am I going to serve right now, God or mammon? God or mammon? I mean, yeah, I could obey and trust God right now, but if I didn't, I could also maybe have a little more cash. So God or mammon? And when you put it like that, it sounds foolish, doesn't it? But that's how we think. When you get really, really get down to it, that's how our thought processes, so they really look like a lot of the time. We find a similar warning about the spiritual danger of money in 1 Timothy 6. Speaking of false teachers, Paul says that they are, quote, depraved in mind and deprived of truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Essentially, they're, they're in it for the profit. There are lots of false teachers like that, right, who are, who are in it for the money, and so they try to manipulate the truth in order to maximize their bank account. Well, Paul continues. He says, But godliness with contentment, so godliness accompanied by gratitude, righteousness accompanied with thankfulness, he says, is great gain. He explains, he says, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Paul says we should be satisfied with the basic necessities of life because we keep nothing when this life is over. That's going to be a theme that, that James touches on today. Uh, Paul actually then explains, as he talks about this, he explains the danger that money can present. He says, But those who desire to be rich, so those who long for more than the basic necessities, those who do not approach money with contentment, he says, they fall into temptation, into a snare, and in many selfless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. He says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Uh, Paul even says, he's, he says, it is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now I should point out, Paul doesn't say that the problem is money. Again, money is a good thing. It's an incredibly useful tool. The problem, though, is the love of money. It's the idolatry of money. When a person stops approaching money with a balanced perspective and starts seeing it as the thing that will solve all their problems, that's when we get into trouble. Paul says that people have actually shipwrecked their faith with that kind of thinking. This is how dangerous money can be spiritually. And it's no different in trials. The love of money threatens our hope and it pulls our attention away from the goal of our sanctification in trials. We saw this last week when we explored the, the first threat to hope in our passage and that's earthly poverty. Uh, when you're suffering and you want relief, it's easy to see money as an easy escape. You say to yourself, if I just had a little more cash, I could fix this problem. It's like the comedian Joe E. Lewis once said. He said, money doesn't buy happiness, but it calms the nerves. Right? That's how we tend to think about money. It protects us. It keeps us safe, secure. And so we idolize it and ask it to deliver us from our troubles instead of turning to God and asking Him for deliverance. And that's a problem because the wisdom that we gain in trials, James says that comes as we focus our attention solely on Christ. We can't be wavering. Our, our interest can't be divided. Our desire has to be fixed on knowing God and making Him known or the wisdom that God has to give us in trials, we won't receive it. It won't make any sense to us. James' original audience was facing just this kind of a situation. 
they're probably suffering from some form of persecution for their faith. In all likelihood, many of them are Jewish Christians that have been forced to flee from Judea because of the hostility that's broken out there. Either they've brought their poverty with them into a foreign land, or, or more likely, this exile has forced them into a kind of poverty. And the thing that they're tempted to think in this situation is, gee, if only we had some money, this trial wouldn't be so bad. James sees the danger in that. And so in verse 9, he tells this group of Christians, he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And then in verse 12, he clarifies what he means by this when he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. He takes their eyes off of their present suffering, and he lifts them up to heaven to remind them that their lack, their want... Is only temporary. I noted last week, this is interesting. James doesn't tell them just to learn to do without. In fact, he doesn't even tell them, if you think about this, he doesn't even tell them to think of the wisdom they'll gain in the trial. Rather, as he considers their lack, he points them to the time when they will be filled. As I said last week, this this principle can be applied in areas other than literal physical poverty. It can be applied to really any good thing that we lack in trials. We can often think, for instance, if if God will only give me this, then I could persevere. Essentially, we make excuses for our lack of obedience. We act as if God hasn't supplied us with what we need to be faithful. When the Scriptures tell us that God has supplied us with everything we need to endure temptation. So to this, James says, remember that you only have to go without for a little while. It's a very short amount of time that you'll lack. It won't be long until you die or Christ returns, and then God will fill you up with every good thing. So be encouraged and press on in light of this hope. This morning, I want us to look at the second threat to our hope in this passage. And just like last week, in this context, it comes in the form of money. But the principle can be applied beyond that. And that threat is... Earthly prosperity. Earthly prosperity. So last week, we said that earthly poverty can discourage our perseverance. Today, it's earthly prosperity. We see this point in verses 10 to 11. After telling the poor brother to boast in his exaltation, James says, "...and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away." For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. You know, you'd think that if poverty is a special kind of obstacle for those facing trials, then the rich must have an advantage. Since they don't have to face the additional pressure that poverty brings. But it doesn't work this way. Instead, the temptation that the rich have is to fall back on their wealth when trials hit, to turn to that for comfort rather than to God. And again, this isn't just true of the financially prosperous. It's like I shared with you last week. I've recently discovered that I've found comfort in my good health rather than in the hope of heaven. Whereas someone with a terminal disease may be guilty of spiritual double vision when they place their hope in a cure rather than in the promises made in Christ. The healthy are guilty of the same thing whenever they do not fear death, not because of their redemption, 
but because of their relative good health. And the same goes for those who trust in any other good blessing that God has given them rather than in Christ. So the prosperous really don't have an advantage. In fact, it turns out that that prosperity is a far more dangerous threat spiritually than poverty. I think this point is illustrated rather well by a recent article I stumbled across on the internet. Uh, It wasn't something I went out looking for, I just happened to run across it by accident. But the title says, The lower your social class, the wiser you are, suggests new study. This was published just about two or three weeks ago. Uh, It's from Science Magazine, so this is a secular source that's saying this. This isn't a Christian one. But listen to the conclusions here and consider how this fits with what we've been studying in James. Remember, wisdom, according to the Scripture, is righteousness. They're, They're one and the same. So if you want to find someone that's wise, they're going to express it through selflessness, right? Through love. James calls selfish ambition, quote, earthly, unspiritual, demonic in chapter 3. While he says that, quote, wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial. Keep that word in mind in light of this study. Wisdom is impartial and sincere. That's what James says is wise. And it's probably fair to conclude that these are the characteristics that he's saying trials produce over here in chapter 1. Now listen to what this study has to say. It begins. It says there's an apparent paradox in modern life. Society as a whole is getting smarter, yet we aren't any closer to figuring out how to get along. How is it possible that we have just as many, if not more, conflicts as before? Asks sociologist Igor Grossman at the University of Waterloo in Canada. <laughs> The answer is that raw intelligence doesn't reduce conflict, he asserts. Wisdom does. Such wisdom, in effect, the ability to take the perspective of others into account and aim for compromise, comes much more naturally to those who grow up poor or working class, according to a new study by Grossman and colleagues. This work represents the cutting edge in wisdom research, says Aranda, uh, I'm going to just guess at the name here, Jaya Wickream, uh, a social psychologist at Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Now, I'll spare you the details of how the researchers came to these conclusions, but suffice to say they conducted two different tests. One was an online survey with over 2,000 participants. The other was a kind of IQ test that they conducted with uh, 200 participants in Ann Arbor, Michigan. What they found in both tests is that people of lower social classes seem to do a better job of considering things from someone else's point of view. They were also more ready to consider that their position could be wrong. In short, they tended to be more impartial in their judgment. And this helped them avoid conflict and get along with other people. There was no correlation, by the way, between this attitude and IQ. People from upper classes with a low IQ were just as stubborn as those with a high IQ and vice versa. Intelligence has nothing to do with someone's ability to empathize with others and see things from their perspective. The distinguishing characteristic, rather, according to this study, appeared to be social class. Now, I should point out that scientifically, correlation doesn't prove causation. So you can't necessarily say that the reason why lower social classes tend to be more adept at working with others is because they're poor or marginalized. There might be other factors contributing to these results, which the researchers aren't taking into account. But I want you to listen to why these researchers think this correlation exists. 
I'll stress this one more time. Their conclusions can't be proven as fact, but just listen to what these secular sociologists say about the relationship between poverty and wisdom. After explaining the test results, the article continues. The findings make sense, Jaya Wickream says, as people who grow up in a working class environment have to rely on shared communal resources more than people in the middle class and therefore hone social techniques that smooth out conflicts with their peers. Those in the middle class, in contrast, tend to focus on education, which improves their IQ scores, but they don't put nearly as much effort into conflict uh, resolution skills, Grossman says. Are you catching the drift here? (laughs) The idea is that people with money and education tend to try to fall back on their intelligence when they run into conflict. They believe they can work out the problem themselves. They take confidence in their own smarts or their own financial resources, and so they don't develop the sort of social skills that these researchers were looking for. The poor, on the other hand, have often been forced to work with other people because they don't have any other option. They don't have a bank account to fall back on. So they've had to learn to work as a team with other people in the same circumstance. And so they did develop a reasoning process that takes other people's points of view into account. Isn't that interesting? I think that's interesting. And this is the difference between the poor sinner and the rich one. You look here in verses 9 to 12, and James doesn't devote half the attention to the poor brother as he does to the rich one. There's just this one short command to the poor in verse 9, and, but in verse 10 to 11, he's explaining why the rich need to heed the command he has for them. He doesn't give an explanation to the poor. He does to the rich. Now, I can't definitively tell you why that's so. But I would speculate that the reason is because James recognizes that the rich face a far more dangerous temptation in times of trials. See, James tells the poor to hope in heaven. And guess what? They don't really have any other choice, do they? You look at the Scripture and it's almost, it almost talks like the poor have a kind of spiritual advantage. You jump down to chapter 2, for instance, and James asks them in verse 5, rhetorically, by the way, James 2, verse 5, he says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which He has promised to those who love Him? He's pointing out that most of the people in the church tended to be poor. They're rich in faith, James says. Paul makes a similar point in 1 Corinthians 1.26 when he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. He says the church isn't populated with rich and powerful people. It's made up of the low and the weak, the poor. Does that mean that the poor have a spiritual advantage? Kind of. It would appear that this is what Jesus means when after the rich young ruler rejects his offer of discipleship, he turns to the disciples and he says, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, let me balance this out here and and state that apart from God's grace, we're all spiritually dead, right? 
So it's not as if the poor have any real spiritual advantage over the rich when it comes to salvation. They're not more receptive to the, to the gospel or anything like that. And Jesus goes on to clarify this point immediately after he makes this statement in Matthew 19. The disciples are astonished and they ask Jesus, they say, who then can be saved? And Jesus answers, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So it's not as if the poor are somehow more receptive to the gospel than the rich are. In fact, Paul tells us that the reason why this phenomenon exists where the poor populate the church rather than the rich, in 1 Corinthians 1, he tells us it's because God means to show deference to the poor in order to shame the rich. He saves the weak in order to shame the strong. It has nothing to do with their ability. It has everything to do with the elective purposes of God. But, but, that being said, in Matthew 19, Jesus is still indicating that the rich do have a unique stumbling block that the poor don't have. So far as external circumstances go, they, the poor do have advantages. Internally, they're just as dead spiritually as the rich man. But externally, they have an advantage. Because when it comes to the kinds of demands that come out of the gospel, I mean, we're talking about surrendering all your possessions to Christ's control, leaving behind family if necessary, essentially giving all your life to Christ. The poor are standing there looking at their pile of junk, going, you mean you want all this for eternal life? Sure, I guess. Where do I sign up, right? That's the way they're looking at it. You know, they're the man who finds the treasure in the field. The treasure is worth far, far more than what little they have to pay to buy the field. So they quickly, quickly sell everything they can and go and buy the field. The rich, though, they're the merchant who finds the pearl of great value. They're rich. And whereas the treasure costs the poor man what little possessions he had, the pearl costs them their riches. Now, obviously, the pearl's still worth it, right? It's worth far more than the merchant's riches. But that's still a harder choice to make than the man who goes and buys the treasure in the field. That's the challenge that the rich face. Will they become poor in order to gain the riches that are found in Christ? Are you starting to see the challenge here? Prosperity is actually a far greater stumbling block than poverty. The poor are actually hemmed in by their poverty. So that logically, they don't have anything else to hope in but heaven. It's really an easy choice. The prosperous, though, and again, that can be the financially prosperous or the physically prosperous or the intellectually prosperous, just start going through the list. Financially, financial prosperity just happens to be the issue that presents itself in this context in James. The prosperous have a far harder choice to make. They're not hemmed in by the trials. They have an escape hatch. And you start to see the dilemma here. Uh, the poor can't shut their pain off with money. The rich can. What a strong temptation that is in trials to just quit when you have the means to do so. What an incredible resolve the rich have to have to keep hurting when they have the means to stop the pain. Again, the poor can't stop their pain, so they don't have any choice but to place their hope in God. The prosperous, though, they have options. They have a very real dilemma on their hands. So what does James say to them? 
He tells them to do the exact opposite thing that he tells the poor to do. He tells the poor to boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Both ideas are captured in that one word, humiliation. The poor are to boast, meaning they're to take hope in their coming exaltation. The rich, though, James says that they're going to be cut low. And he tells them they need to be humbled by that thought. I mentioned this idea last week. I said there's going to be this kind of grand reversal that takes place at the end where the poor are lifted up and the rich are brought low. Here James gives a better picture of what this is, what it's going to look like. Describing this coming humiliation, he says, For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. The idea is that the rich man's riches are temporary. It's like the psalmist says, Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. It's just like the old cliche goes, you never see a U-Haul behind a hearse, right? That's the psalmist's point as well. The rich carry nothing with them. Their riches are temporary. That's what James is saying here as well. So there is a kind of reversal that takes place at death. Where the rich in this life, and that can be rich believers, rich unbelievers, it doesn't really matter because when they die, they're all stripped of their physical wealth. They carry none of it with them. Their earthly riches are torn away. The poor, on the other hand, they are suddenly lifted up as they're clothed in glory. Now the point here isn't to say that rich believers aren't going to share in the same heavenly inheritance. They will. In verse 12, James encourages them both with the crown of life that they'll receive on the last day. The point, rather, is to encourage the rich to see the vanity of their earthly riches and to remind them that though they might find a kind of temporary refuge in their wealth in this life, it's not going to endure. It's not going to last. It would seem that the reason why James wants them to have this perspective on wealth is so that they might willingly embrace the refining fires of trials. He wants them to take on that trial willingly. And you might wonder, what does that look like? I think you see the answer come up in James 2. When the poor brother comes seeking food and clothing, and they're being sent away. That's what those with wealth sometimes do in hard times. The economy crashes or something like that, and brothers are suffering... And what, are the rich, what does the rich Christian do? Sadly, they often start hoarding their money more. They think, you know, the economy sure is rough right now. Better make sure I can save as much as I can so I can make it. And they actually start giving less, not more. I know it sounds weird, but giving goes down in a down economy rather than up. It's supposed to be the other way around. That's when brothers need it most. When the economy is down, not when it's prospering. But it's usually easier to give when things are going well than when it's hard. And so the rich hold on to their money in times like the ones James readers are experiencing here. That's the situation here. The rich are somewhat insulated from the effects of persecution by their riches. And they're forgetting their poor brothers who are suffering. They're trying to preserve their own comfort rather than scale back their lifestyle for the benefit of their brothers. 
And so James tries to encourage them to loosen their purse strings by reminding them that their comfort is a very temporary comfort. If they were to choose to suffer by freely surrendering their wealth to their brethren, it would only be a very short kind of suffering. They're eventually going to lose it all anyway, so why not invest their money in something that's going to last? The lesson here is very much like the one that comes from the parable of the dishonest manager. I want to read this parable to you. It comes from Luke 16. Jesus tells us this parable. You can turn there if you'd like. Luke 16, verses 1 to 9. Jesus says there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And then listen to what Jesus says in verse 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, you may receive, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. If you look at this parable, the manager realizes that he's about to lose his position of power. He's going to be fired. And so what does he do? He starts using that power to make friends that can help him after he's unemployed. That's, that's pretty shrewd, right? That's pretty smart in a, in, a, in a twisted way, but it's smart. Well, Jesus actually says, that's the way you need to think about your money. You're not going to have it long. It's very temporary, so you might as well invest it in something that's going to last after it's gone. It's like what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19-21. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And that's James' point here as well. As he exhorts both the rich and the poor in the midst of their trials. He says to the poor, on one hand, don't lose hope. Remember what riches await you in heaven. And then in the same breath, he tells the rich, and you need to remember that all your gold is ash. And consider your poor brother and suffer with him in this trial. Don't stand at a distance and think, gee, I wish there was something I could do to help him right now. No, you sacrifice for him and join with him in his suffering. After all, it's only going to be for a little while. Now, I would ask you this. Of the two men in this exhortation, the lowly brother, the poor brother, right? And the rich one. Which one do you think better describes you? I think if we're understanding the idea of poverty and prosperity here figuratively, meaning if we're applying it outside of the realm of just economic status, I'd venture to say that all of us can serve alternately as the poor brother or the rich one, depending on what we're talking about. But on the whole, in which realm do we live most of the time? And most especially as it relates to financial prosperity. 
Wouldn't it probably be a fair judgment to say that most of us live more on the prosperous side of this equation than the poverty side? I mean, we're not sitting around wondering where our next meal comes from. Paul talks about if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. I mean, the financial, that financial situation describes pretty much all of us, right? I don't know that anyone in here had trouble sleeping last night because they didn't have clothes or shelter to keep them warm. I doubt any of you probably wonder where your next meal is going to come from. If anything, we fall into the category of those who want to be rich. If we're anxious about money, it's probably not. It's probably not because we're just trying to survive. It's because we want a certain level of comfort. We want excess. I'd imagine even even those of you who think you're living pretty tight, if you stop and thought about it, what you'd see is that what you actually want is probably excess. And you're not sure you're going to get it. If that describes you, then I have news for you. You're in a spiritually dangerous position. That may shock you because you don't feel like you're in a dangerous position. You're actually quite comfortable. But that's actually part of the problem. You're quite comfortable. And that means that when trials come, there's nothing pressing you to trust in God. There's nothing pressuring you to live by faith. It's easy. It's very easy for you to fall back on your wealth or your intellect or your connections or your health or whatever and have a quick rescue without ever having to learn obedience. That's a dangerous position to be in. Because you're never going to be made perfect and complete. You're never going to gain the benefit of a strong and robust faith. One that draws you near to Christ so long as you're comfortable. But I have good news for you. There's a way that you can become uncomfortable. There's a way that, that you too can suffer through trials in the same way that your poor brethren do. You can join them. You can abandon your prosperity, surrender in the same way that Christ did when He left heaven and became a man, and you can bear your brother's suffering with them. You may not think that there are brothers you can suffer for like this, but there are. They may not always come from this particular community because we live in a pretty prosperous community. They may live halfway around the world, but there are brothers and sisters in Christ who don't have the financial prosperity you have. Or maybe the same talents or the skills that you have. Or the physical strength that you have. And if you just stop thinking about your own comfort and chose to be inconvenienced for them, you could serve them and bless them and encourage them in their suffering. How do you do that? Where do you find the courage to willingly embrace suffering? Where do you find the strength to just give up your comfort? It's by doing what James says here. You remember how temporary your physical blessings are. I mean, you realize that all the good things that you have right now, again, that could be your money or your physical health or your talents or abilities, you realize that they're all temporary, right? They're not going to last forever. Either Jesus is going to come back or you're going to eventually grow old and die. Even the healthiest and the strongest of you are going to shrivel up like a flower in the summer's heat and die. And none of the things that you have right now are going to go with you on the other side. So there's no use protecting them. The best joy they can give you in this life is temporary. If you apply it spiritually, it can be eternal. So far wiser you would be if you invested them in spiritual things by loving your brethren 
than you would be if you continued to refuse them now. And if you do this, you'll have the added benefit, not just of a heavenly reward, but of a present righteousness, a refined and steadfast faith that will give you far greater joy and comfort than the very transient idols that you hope in right now. I mentioned last week that my wife and I have had some hard times financially during our marriage. Again, even even the poor in America are rich, right? Uh, So I would never say that we were poor, poor. Um, But it was new for us. Um, We both came from upper middle class families, and there have been times, I mentioned last week, where we've had to use government assistance to make ends meet. That was new for us. Now, it's not that way anymore. Things are much better now than what they were then. But it's still nowhere like what it was for us growing up. Even now, it's not like what it was for us growing up, and it never will be. Uh, We both knew that when I chose ministry, we were never going to get rich doing it. Well, a couple months back, we got to splurge. Uh, During the Maple Leaf Festival here in town, uh, the Carthage Historical Society hosts a lobster dinner on the lawn of the Phelps house. My wife loves lobster. And so for our anniversary, I bought a couple of tickets and we went. I have to tell you guys, it was, it was an absolutely wonderful dinner. I mean, the food was great. Uh, they had crab legs, lobster at the same time. Emily liked the crabs, like, uh, I liked the lobster. There's this, there's this live music playing in the background. You know, you're under these tents on the lawn, and it was an ex- extremely beautiful day outside. Just the right temperature, not too hot, not too cold. From where I was sitting, the, the sun was going down behind those big, beautiful houses on Grand, and it was kind of casting this golden hue on everything around us. I mean, it was picturesque. It was really the perfect dinner. Emily and I, we still talk about it months later. Anyways, as we're sitting there, it's, it's stirring up memories for us of what life used to be like growing up. Uh, you see, Emily's family, uh, one side actually had a membership to the local country club, and for Easter, they'd all dress up and have brunch and mimosas at the country club on you know Easter morning. That's what she was accustomed to growing up, and now she's married to me. <laughs> Needless to say, it's been a shift. So we're sitting there, and as these memories are being stirred up, Emily asks me, she says, why did we leave this again? She says, I mean, I I really liked doing these kinds of things with my family. It was fun. So why aren't we trying to live like this all the time? You know what I told her? I said, because this is all temporary. It's all going away. The rich already have their reward in full. We're running after a heavenly reward. And she paused for a minute. She said, thanks, I needed to hear that. This is how the hope of heaven works for those in prosperity. It encourages them to freely surrender their comfort by reminding them that all the idols they seek refuge in now are going to be utterly vanquished at the return of Christ. So you rich, you prosperous, you who avoid the pain of trials by finding comfort in your idols, consider what James urges you to consider here this morning. Consider the vanity of your prosperity. Consider how very temporary your idols are. Consider, my friends, your coming humiliation. In Luke 12, Jesus tells a parable. He says, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. 
And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Does that man describe you? Are you taking comfort in the fact that you think you have a long, comfortable life stretching out ahead of you? If so, then you need to remember what James writes here in James 1, 9-12. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls. Its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Your beauty and strength will fade. Your net worth will perish with you. But the crown of life and the blessing of holiness, these things will not fade. They won't go up and down with the stock market. They'll endure forever. So set your hope on heaven and learn to embrace trials. Let's pray.